You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Next is in Acts chapter 24. Sermon text for today is um, out of Acts 24, but we're reading from verses 10 through 21. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, because I know you have been a judge of this nation for many years, I'm glad to offer my defense in what concerns me. You can verify for yourself that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. They didn't find me arguing with anyone or causing a disturbance among the crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or anywhere in the city. Neither can they prove the charges they are now making against me. But I admit this to you. I worship the God of my ancestors according to the way, which they call a sect, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and written in the prophets. I have a hope in God, which these men themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection, both of the righteous and the unrighteous. I always strive to have a clear conscience toward God and men. After many years, I came to bring charitable gifts and offerings to my people. And while I was doing this, some Jews from Asia found me ritually purified in the temple, without a crowd and without any uproar. It is they who ought to be here before you to bring charges, if they have anything against me. Or let these men here state what wrongdoing they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin, other than this one statement I shouted while standing among them. Today, I am on trial before you concerning the resurrection of the dead. This is God's word. Kids are dismissed. Everyone can be seated. Well, good morning, King's Cross. I am Chad, one of the pastors here, and so grateful to be with you as we continue on in our series in Acts. We're going to be turning to a passage here in Acts 24, actually the entire chapter 24. If you have your Bibles or you have your apps, turn there. We're going to have the text on the screen as long as the screen continues to stay with us. Um, but, uh, But it's always helpful to see that in front of you and be able to reference that and see where we are as we go through. Because we're going to go through a trial of Paul. Paul's been captured last week. He's now facing Felix. And we have an opportunity to see how Paul responds when he's faced with accusations. So I'm gonna ask that the Holy Spirit be with us this morning and ask that you pray with me that he joins us and teaches us today. Father, I'm thankful for your kindness. I'm thankful that we do have the privilege and the use of this space to be able to come together as your people, to honor you, to glorify you, and to hear from you. Father, I ask today in no uncertain terms that you make yourself evident in this room that your spirit would speak to us and change us to look more like Jesus. Thank you for all that you do. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen. Well, as followers of Christ and something of a rapidly changing world, it's possible that we might feel ourselves on trial from time to time. What I mean by that is there's accusations 
and misrepresentations about our faith that seem to come from all directions. Hopefully you're not engulfed in social media uproar about believers because there's a whole feed line you could find about all the evils of Christianity and churches and the news, even conversations with friends or family. The truth is some of it is well-founded on some abuses and some really awful traumatizing experiences in claiming church settings by people as spiritual leaders. And those are awful incidences. But all too often, these things aren't representative of actual Christianity, not representative of those who would claim to follow Jesus. And for us who might face these accusations from time to time, they may be random, conflated, patently false, and it can be tempting to feel overwhelmed, to recoil, or even to question our own faith, or maybe to lash out and strike back. But today, while we dive into Acts in chapter 24, we find a relatable and helpful example in Apostle Paul. Because Paul stands before Felix accused Felix, the Roman governor, facing serious charges brought by his opponents, the Jewish leaders. Yet even in the midst of these accusations, he responds with grace, with conviction, and an unwavering focus on the main thing. In fact, it's almost like this is really a conversation between Paul and Felix. He takes the accusations that are unfounded in the accusers and almost sets them aside Responding and denying their claims, yet turning to the person who stands in front of him. The ones that we might overlook and not consider if we get too caught up in all the accusations that come our way. In fact, most of our relationships, our friends, our family, our co-workers who might not yet believe in Jesus are probably a lot more like Felix than we realize. I mean, they hear the world's accusations against Christianity, they might hear those things flowing out there. They might have, be indifferent. They might buy into. They might believe. But inevitably, they look to us wondering, what do you have to say about this? Our task, like Paul's, isn't to be derailed by these accusations or to delve into some endless arguments. Instead, we're called to respond with, with grace, with humility, and to focus back on what are the main things the hope of the resurrection, the transformative power of the gospel, and the invitation to live for Christ. So as we go into Acts 24 today, we're going to learn from Paul's example. We're going to see how he engages his accusers, but all more importantly, how he actually engages Felix. In fact, Charles Spurgeon preaches on a portion of this passage, and he titles his sermon, Paul's Sermon to Felix. That's his audience. If you're with us today and you don't consider yourself yet to be a follower of Jesus, we're glad you're here. You might be questioning, doubting, or even strongly disagreeing with some of the Christian beliefs that you've heard. And I want you to know you're not alone and your questions and your doubts are welcome here. In fact, in today's passage, we meet a man named Felix, who just like you found himself listening to a follower of Jesus and trying to understand this faith that was accused of turning the world upside down. 
And this is where we get to witness how Paul, one of the earliest followers of Jesus, respond to accusations, allegations, misrepresentations of his faith. And he doesn't do it with disdain or defensiveness, but with clarity, respect, and an unwavering focus on Christ. Believers, we need to keep the gospel central. We need to speak boldly and live blamelessly as Christ's witnesses and as ambassadors of the kingdom. So let's look now in Acts 24 and let's see how Paul walks through this initially. Let's, let's look through the story and what's going on here. So read with me in Acts 24, verses starting in verse 1. Five days later, Ananias, the high priest, came down with some elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. These men presented their case against Paul to the governor. Now, let's take a second here and, and look at what's happening. Last week, we saw that Paul was taken into custody in Jerusalem by the Roman commander, Lysias. And when Lysias found out that Paul's life was being threatened by the Jews, he transported Paul to Felix in Caesarea. Now, what we're reading here is the beginning of the trial before Felix. Felix had received Paul and said he was going to wait for the accusers to, to come. And it looks like five days later the high priest Ananias came and they brought a lawyer. They wanted to make sure they had um, someone to represent them well. They wanted to try to make sure this goes well for them and they are able to get Paul prosecuted. So in this case, it's helpful for us to know a little bit about Felix's backstory that we have from history. Felix is a real man who was a Roman procurator of Judea province, and we have historical evidence and historians who spoke about him. Um, so, so we can see and understand why some of the responses from the attorney, the lawyer, and from Paul um, are significant. So let's look at with, with Felix. He, as I mentioned, was a Roman procreator of Judea in the province there, which included regions of modern Israel, Palestine, and Jordan. And he was there from about 52 to 60 AD. Now, Felix and his brother Pallas were what's known as freedmen. And if you're not familiar with that, that means that they used to be slaves and they were freed, and they now are able to enjoy um, the, the benefits of a free person. That's why they're called freedmen, but they still bear the label that everyone knows they were once slaves. Pallas was actually an influential advisor to Emperor Claudius, and he's the one who freed them. And then later, Pallas moved on to be an advisor for Nero. And really, Pallas is the reason that Felix obtained the positions he held and got him out of trouble later with Nero when, uh, when he ran into some issues in his rule. So um, historically, Felix is seen as having a very harsh rule. The Roman historian Tacitus actually wrote that Felix exercised the power of a king with the mind of a slave. Uh, suggesting that he was very heavy-handed, possibly even cruel in maintaining order. 
Um, we know from also the Jewish historian Josephus of se- several examples in which Felix demonstrated a harsh rule. Uh, he was known to be ruthless in his suppression of any form of dissent. Um, he would employ undercover agents that would go in to infiltrate dissenting groups and have these groups violently crushed. Um, he arranged for the assassination of the high priest Jonathan. Apparently, Jonathan was critical of Felix's administration, and Felix decided to hire an assassin named Doris to uh, to get rid of him and take care of the problem. Um, Felix's reign was also a time of significant Jewish unrest and the rise of zealotry. Now, what zealots were uh, was a political movement that uh, of, of first century Judaism which sought to incite the people of Judea to rebel against the Roman Empire and, uh, and to expel them from the Holy Land. And Felix brutally suppressed this movement. He, he also is the one pit, uh, who captured the Egyptian false prophet that was mentioned in Acts 21 earlier in this letter. Killing and uh, or capturing his followers and likely working with these Jewish leaders that are standing before him today. He, he showed little regard for the sanctity of the priesthood or Jewish customs and, and often opted for violence and manipulation. Now, Felix was married three times. We see his third wife, Drusilla, mentioned in this passage, who um, was actually a Jewish woman who was the daughter of Herod Agrippa I, that part of that dynasty, sisters of Agrippa II, who is mentioned here in the next chapter of Acts. She is um, related to the dynasty family of Herods who ruled around Judea. And... um, the historian Josephus says that Felix was captivated by Drusilla's beauty and pers- per- persuaded her to leave her husband, who she married at 15, by sending a, a sorcerer to convince her to come to marry him. So uh, she was someone who would have given him insight and access to Jewish knowledge and things going on. She shows up. Um, later in this passage as someone who was listening to Paul. So it's possible her interest in what Paul had to say and, and the knowledge that Felix has about the way, uh, which is what they called Christians at the time, comes from Drusilla. And, uh, and later we know that Drusilla and her son Agrippa actually died in the eruption, uh, the eruption at Mount Vesuvius. Um, so these are the people we're looking at here. This is the man Felix that we are uh, addressing, that Paul is addressing. And so considering all of this, considering all um, that we know about Felix, let's look at how Tertullus begins to make his case against Paul. When Paul was called in, Tertullus began to accuse him and said, we enjoy great peace because of you. Yeah, you crush them all, crush everybody. And reforms are taking place for the benefit of this nation because of your foresight. Yeah, hey, we know that your harsh rule, as a matter of fact, foresight, your providence is what is what makes this place, place peaceful. We acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with utmost gratitude. But so that I will not burden you any further, I request you would be kind enough to give us a brief hearing. 
his introduction, as he has set up. Now he's got Felix waiting. What do you have to say? For we have found this man, what? To be a plague, an agitator among all the Jews throughout the Roman world, and a ringleader of the sects of the Nazarene. He even tried to desecrate the temple, and so we apprehended him by examining him yourself. You will be able to discern the truth about these charges we are bringing against him. The Jews also joined in the attack, alleging these things were true. So you can see off, out of the gate, Tertullus says, this guy is an enemy of peace. Felix, you've got to get rid of him. In fact, not only is he an enemy of the peace, he's the head of a whole group of Nazarites. We've got to get rid of them too. That's the stage he's setting. And, and you might notice in here, just I want to acknowledge as you look at it, in verse 7 it seems to disappear. If you didn't notice, I'll point it out for you. I want to acknowledge it. Okay. What happens there is actually, uh, in verse 7, we have it from our oldest text. They found a lot older manuscripts. 7 didn't seem to show up. It was almost like 7, not that they didn't have numbers, but that that, that sentence was, was just something that might have been a note later or an expansion on what was going on. So in an effort to be closely tied to the earliest, they took it out of there. It doesn't do anything to add to the conversation. It only expands on what possibly the Jewish people might have said. Just acknowledge that. You see there's no seven. And it says that they essentially said, hey, we apprehended him. And by the way, you Roman people took him before we could actually prosecute him the way we should. It's a little less likely that they would have said something offensive to Rome. So it's probably, that's why they just said, let's just take it out. Okay? No big deal. Doesn't change the story. So what goes on to verse 10? When the governor mentioned for him, uh, when the governor mentioned motion for him to speak, now we turn to Paul. Paul replied with this: Because I know you have to be been a judge of this nation for many years, I am glad to offer my defense in what concerns me. You can verify for yourself that it is no more than twelve days since I went to worship in Jerusalem. They didn't find any arguing with anyone or causing disturbances among the crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogue or anywhere in the city. Neither can they prove the charges they're not making against me. He just responds by denying these allegations. They got nothing, nothing really happened. And now he turns to acknowledge what is true. But I admit this to you. I worship the God of my ancestors according to the way. That's what they referred to as Christianity at the time, the way. Which they called a sect. Believing everything that is in accordance with the law and written in the prophets, I have hope in God, which these men themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection, both of the righteous and the unrighteous. I always strive to have a clear conscience toward God and men. After many years, I came to bring charitable gifts and offerings to my people. And while I was doing this, some Jews from Asia found me richly purified in the temple, without a crowd, without an uproar. <clears throat> it is they who ought to be here before you to bring charges. If they have anything against me, I will let these men here state what wrongdoing they found in me. When I stood before the Sanhedrin, other than this one statement, I shouted while standing among them, Today, I am on trial before you concerning the resurrection of the dead. Paul's defense, I didn't do any of that. This is actually what happened. I agree with everything. But they, I, I don't deny the law and the prophets. Those are all foundational for me. We agree on resurrection, that there will be one one day. But what I tell you is now, the resurrection has happened in Christ. That's what he's pointing to. The way is that Jesus Christ is the one who is resurrected. And just like that, what they say, the only crux of what's going on here, Paul says, is we are debating over the concern, the resurrection of the dead. He's reframed what they have accused him of 
as violent and agitator and said, no, this is just a matter of theology. What do we understand to be true about God? In that case, Felix now has to respond. What does he do? Since Felix was well informed about the way, probably about Drusilla, he's well informed, he adjourned the hearing, saying, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will decide your case. He ordered that the centurion keep Paul under guard, though he could have some freedom and that he should not prevent any of his friends from meeting his needs. We talked about this last, last week. For a Roman citizen, Felix was granting him a measure of freedom. He said, listen, let's just keep him here, but, but give him some freedom and let his friends come to him. Matter of fact, if your friends don't come and feed you, it wasn't like prison in America or in a, in, in a third world country where they're going to feed you and clothe you. It was up to you to take care of that. So it was likely he needed to have that care. Several days later, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and he listened to him on the subject of faith in Christ. Now, as he spoke about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, Felix became afraid and replied, leave for now, but when I have an opportunity, I'll call for you. At the same time, he was also hoping that Paul would offer him money. So he sent for him quite often and conversed with him. He was hoping for a bribe, which is actually not legal for a, a Roman um, politician or a, a ruler to take, but they would accept it if you came out and said, you know what, I got a little extra cash. Uh, earlier he said he was bringing a gift of money, so maybe maybe Felix said it's possible he's got some of that cash, he'll give me some of it. Right? That's what's at play. But he also comes with his wife, Drusilla, who is possibly interested in what Paul might have to say. She's Jewish in her upbringing, or she is Jewish. She's actually the daughter of Agrippa I. Her brother shows up in the next passage. She's one of the Herods. You know that line that really is like almost like the, the enemy of the Jesus line thing going on throughout the gospel? So Drusilla is with him, and you see he speaks to him about a very specific line of topics. Righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. And that makes Felix He says, please leave me alone. I'll come back when I'm, when I'm ready. And then the end result of this passage is verse 27. After two years had passed, Porcius Festus succeeded Felix. And because Felix wanted to do the Jews a favor, he left Paul in prison. Now, this is not uncommon. There's actually recordings we have. They don't have habeas corpus like we do. There's no, there's no right to a speedy trial. So you could be accused and kept in prison for an undetermined amount of time. Uh, he was kept in prison because Felix wanted, had no way to find him guilty. But he also didn't want to stir up the Jews. Remember earlier we said that Felix had a lot of, of, of um, there was a lot of zealotry and, and rioting among the Jews during his rule. Okay? So he's like, I'm just going to do you a favor, I'll leave him in play. And that's, what, that's what's going on with Felix. So what is it we can see here from Paul's response? Let's look at three important takeaways that I want us to focus in on about Paul's response to Felix and how he walks through this trial. The first is this, that Paul's witness keeps the main thing the main thing. Remember, even though he denies what's going on and passes aside, he moves on to what is true about who he worships. The God of my ancestors, according to the way, which they call a sect, believing everything that's accordance with the law and written in the prophets. I have a hope in God, which these men themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection both of the righteous and the unrighteous. And then he ends his passage in repeating what he told the Sanhedrin, that today I'm on trial concerning the resurrection of the dead. 
you know, later Paul writes that if Christ is not uh, resurrected, then we of all should be pitied. That is the crux of Christianity. That Jesus Christ not only came with a lot of good words and messages, but he lived his life perfectly and died but didn't stay there. That the king of glory rose from the dead. That he's not still in the grave. Paul didn't take a ton of time to dwell on all the side issues that the Jewish leaders were accusing him with. He only responded to them in turn to what was truly important. Because in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it's the cornerstone of Christian faith. And there's so many implications for it. In Christ's resurrection, we see victory over death and sin. The resurrection signifies Christ's victory over death and sin. Sin is the, um, for sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank be to God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ's resurrection, we have justification. I mean, we aren't dead in our own sins, but he took them for us. It accomplished our justification before God. It tells us he was delivered over death for our sin and was raised to life for our justification. In Christ's resurrection, we have assurance of God's power on display. The resurrection demonstrates the immense power of God, confirming he is indeed capable of raising the dead and gives believers hope for their own resurrection. In the resurrection, we see validation of Jesus' divinity and his messiahship. The resurrection validates Jesus' claims about himself, confirming him as the Son of God. And he was shown to be the Son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. The resurrection of Jesus is a fulfillment of prophecy. It confirms what the old also tells us. Showing that God's plan for redemption has been accomplished in his Son, and his word is trustworthy. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have the establishment of a living hope. Peter states in 1 Peter, Praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have the initiation of the new creation. The death isn't the end. That Jesus had a resurrected body, and as, his, as he is resurrected, he is the first fruits of many that would follow after him. In the resurrection of Christ, we have the empowerment for our Christian living. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is now at work within believers. Empowering us to live in a way that pleases God, in a way that we can on our own. In essence, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the ultimate vindication of God's justice, love, and power. It undergirds all Christian teaching and hope and sets Christianity apart from all other religions as its leader is not in the grave. Jesus is not dead. He's alive and reigning eternally. That's why it's the main thing. With Felix, when he spoke to him separately, he spoke of, to him of faith in Christ. 
Felix wanted a bribe, and Paul focused on righteousness, self-control, and future judgment. There's so many ways we can be tempted to be sidetracked. There's so many arguments. There's so many accusations that we can be tempted in to carry out. Believe me, I like to get into all the nuance of everything, and I can be drug aside into a conversation like anybody else. Probably worse than anybody else. But as we talk to those who are outside the faith, we should emulate Paul. We should look to his example. Now, we shouldn't lose track of what is the crux of following Jesus. The death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ and the hope of resurrection for all believers. That's what's so important. And when he came to talk to Felix about that, the second thing we want to draw out and see is that Paul's witness was bold. He came with that message and he was bold. And listen, I'm not saying he was bold like he came in there and just threw down the hammer. But rather, really, we can see that Paul talked to the person. That's how he was bold. It's easy to talk about ideas. It's easy to talk in generalities. But when we have to look at an individual face-to-face and talk to their heart and their conscience, that's bold. To speak to that person and where they are and how the gospel applies to them. Look again. What did he say when he talked to Felix? When he brought Paul in to listen to him on the subject of faith in Jesus Christ, he spoke about righteousness, which Felix struggled with. He talked to him about self-control, sending a sorcerer to go get your your new bride. And then finally, the judgment to come. And that's that's where Felix got himself. It's not because anything Paul challenged him with was untrue. Because of how true it was. That there was no reason that Felix could deny that what Paul testified to applied to him. That he was unrighteous, that he lacked self control, and that he had no answer before the God and creator of the universe. And you have to say, as he talks about faith in Jesus Christ, that in the midst of all that, Paul was certainly saying, but you have hope in him. I can't see Paul walking away without saying that. Paul's just like leaving him hanging. Hey, it doesn't look good for you, buddy. (laughs) Doesn't look good. There's a lot of things that Felix prioritized in life. His pride and position, his power, his influence, his peace, his money, and Paul's accusers all appealed to all of those desires. They brought the high priest. He like power and prestige. Hey, this is a really important topic. I'm here. You, you said you're assisting when it doesn't matter. They brought the best rhetorician to tell him, puff him up about, man, you have just been doing great with peace around here, just keeping them dissenters down. Why don't you just keep doing that with him? He wanted money. He wanted to be bribed by Paul. I'm sure I just picture Peter walking into the temple, the synagogue, and the guy who's who's begging for money and said, Listen, I don't have any money, but this is what I'll give you. That's kind of Paul here. Like, I got no money for you. That's for the church, but I will give you what I have. Paul's accuser appealed to all those things, but Paul spoke directly to Felix's conscience. He said, You know, you're familiar with the way. We're not causing problems. But in fact, in fact, these accusers that are accusing me of all this stuff, they're not even here. You can't, you can't convict me, but let me tell you about what's important. You're going to stand before a judge 
that's even more righteous. I might look like I'm on trial here, Felix, but you're the one that's on trial. And in the end, you're going to have to give an answer for all that you've done, taking this 15-year-old bride and seducing her to your own, crushing dissenters, all of those things that you've lived your life in. You've lacked self-control. And God's looking at you and saying, what do I do with you? Felix, your only hope is Jesus. The gospel is a bold message that confronts us personally and our sin before God and offers a transformational grace in Jesus. Because it doesn't leave you there. If we're going to be bold like Paul, we have to be willing to talk to the person. To see humanity and human beings and souls before us. Not projects. Not enemies. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we gain a brother and sister to care for one who is lost and might be found. That's how we be like Paul. He was bold before Felix because he trusted in the king over Felix. And he knew that Felix needed him just like Paul did. Finally, we see that Paul's witness was blameless. He was blameless. Look at verses 15 through 16. I have hope in God, which these men themselves also accept. There will be a resurrection, both of the righteous and the unrighteous. I always strive to have a clear conscience before God. Amen. Paul demonstrates that being a faithful witness is also living blameless. He was accused of stirring up riots and desecrating the temple, and his accusers were playing politics. But he calmly and respectfully denies these charges. He maintained his integrity. And he speaks right to Felix. Felix has a history of abuse and taking bribes. He's not blameless. But Paul aims to have a clear conscience before God. Amen. Not that he's perfect. But brothers and sisters, when we engage and interact with people who don't agree with us, can we say the same thing about our conduct? Remember I said that some of the accusations against professing believers are well-founded. That some carrying the name of Christ have treated others very poorly. That they have not lived blamelessly like Paul. That they haven't sought to honor the name of Christ, but rather to advance some agenda. To prove themselves right. To crush an enemy. None of those things that Paul sought to do with Felix. That he saw the person and he wanted to live with a clear conscience before God. And that's exactly what we need to do. Every... It's hard to remember a world before this. You feel like there's different stages of your life where, what was that like? What was it like when you you couldn't get online and just yell at somebody because you wanted to? Through texting on a keyboard or whatever. You know. Sorry if I want to frame myself like a really old person up here. You know, the worst thing you had going on was the crazy person that lived in town. Now they're all together online. <laughs> 
say everybody has an audience. We just wish they hadn't gotten one. <laughs> it can be so frustrating when we hear accusations that aren't true. Wow, what a testimony of the hope of the gospel and our trust in the providence of God if we can walk through those accusations and those challenges with grace and humility. It's not the power of our own might and our wit and our wisdom that's going to change anybody anyway. And just as Paul talks to Felix, in the end, ultimately everyone stands before the same judge. We're not their judge. We can be discerning. And we can speak boldly in truth. But we should follow Paul's example to witness blamelessly that no one would carry an accusation. That's exactly what Peter encouraged. The people who were being beaten down and tormented and, and, and persecuted he said that you should live in such a way that in the end, none of their accusations will stand. That in the end, on the Lord's day, God would be glorified because of the way you lived. Not by the fights you won. Not by the lives you devastated or the people that you destroyed in the latest argument. I enjoy a good uh, debate. But I will tell you that most of the people that go into a debate over a topic assume they're not going to change the mind of the other person. But how we walk through those conversations and even debates in our own life should give a testimony to Jesus to everyone who would see it from the outside. In the end, it should be Jesus Christ in his spirit speaking through you. That's what we trust in. That's like Paul and his witness, how we live blamelessly. Our actions as much as our words are a critical part of our witness. We should be above reproach. We should reflect the love and character of Jesus in all that we do. Brothers and sisters, we need to keep the gospel central. We should speak boldly to the person, and we should live blamelessly as a witness of Christ, his ambassadors for the kingdom. That's what Paul is, and that's what you and I are. And finally, let's look at Felix and his response, because these are responses we're going to see from people. In fact, as Paul is a a witness for the gospel as he keeps the main thing the main thing, as he's bold with speaking directly with Felix, as he is blameless in his action towards everyone, we still see that some people are like Felix when they hear the good news, when they hear and see the testimony of someone living blamelessly before them, even in that space, it says this in verse 25, Felix became afraid and replied, leave for now. When I have an opportunity, I'll call for you. We have no story or message of Felix ever coming to me. Paul was there for two years. And he sent for him quite often. The, the way that Felix ends is because such an uprising occurred among the Jews. And then he crushed the zealots in such a violent way 
that a, a group of Jews went to Nero and complained. And they said, you got to get out of there. It's not going well. Peace was really important in Rome. Peace is important everywhere, but it was really important for them. We know it, it was so important, we know it as the Pax Romana. It's a, it's a history word about it. So he took Felix out of here, and it was in that case that his brother saved and preserved Felix. But even in all of those things, when he had the opportunity of the gospel for him for two years, Paul was bold, Paul was blameless. Paul kept the main thing in front of Felix, and Felix never came to the gospel. So brothers and sisters, we're never going to fight or convince or argue anybody in the kingdom. And even if we follow Paul's example, everyone's going to accept Christ. But Felix stands before that judge. He's seen him face to face. So we should pray for boldness. We should pray that when the time comes for our Felix in our life, when we're standing before him and they say, I've heard this stuff about Christian, what do you say? That we have the clarity of Paul to be able to speak and keep the main thing, the main thing. That we have the boldness to speak directly to those who would ever come to us. What an opportunity. How many do I squander when someone brings up Jesus and I'm kind of like, eh, walk them? Because it's uncomfortable. If God would give us that boldness, we can pray that God would also lead us to live a life that's blameless before him. He would empower us and strengthen us to walk in that way, that the example that we lead, though not perfect, would glorify the king. Let's pray towards those ends. Father, in your kindness, we are so grateful for the opportunity to see Paul's example before Felix. God, I pray that we would take to heart the example of his witness, that even though Felix never came to a realization and acceptance of the truth of Jesus Christ, Lord, that we have our opportunities every day to be a witness for him. That grant us the privilege of seeing those unlike Felix who come into the kingdom. Lord, by the truth of your power and resurrection of Christ, and by our bold proclamation that Jesus Christ would be glorified, what a privilege and a gift it is that you would work weak vessels like us. What an honor. Give us that boldness. Give us the discernment. Grant us the wisdom. Grant us clarity. Glorify your name and exalt Jesus in our life. Make us more like him. I ask all this in Christ's name.